0: Ryan, welcome to Where Others Won't.
1: Thanks, Cody. Glad to be here.
0: We are going to jam on something that we are both quite obsessed with and have been for a long time. Why and how teams do things. I love your book, Intangibles. I want to start off asking this. Usually, I kind of ask authors at the end of, of interviews, but what was the catalyst for wanting to explore this topic, particularly from a baseball sense where every effort has kind of gone into emphasising the importance of tangibles and measurables and kind of the opposite of what you've written about in your sport?
1: Well, that's basically what the impetus was. You know, this, <laughs> right. So in 2009, um I had just started a year earlier. I had left the newspaper business where I'd spent, you know, my whole career mostly writing sports, and you know, switched to writing books. <clears throat> and and you know, I loved the newspaper business, but you know, as we all know, it it really changed. And so I went to the Giants and pitched myself. You know, you need to hire me. You know, to help the players with their interviews and and all the rest of it. So that was in two thousand eight, and so in two thousand nine there was a reunion of my favorite team ever, which was, and I'm dating myself, the 1989 uh, San Francisco Giants baseball team. And so I went to that reunion and, and it was the 20th reunion of them winning the National League pennant and going to the World Series, which ended up being that earthquake World Series that if you're old enough, you remember. And so I walked through that tent and I loved those guys. There was just something so, um, so captivating about them. And they were just this range of factions that shouldn't have worked at all. You know, it was the, um, the what we call the God squatters, you know, these really religious conservative guys, and then the carousers who would go out drinking every night, and you know who knows what else they were doing, and you know these Southern whites and the the um, urban black player, you know, and it, it just like you walked in there and like this ain't gonna work, and you could tell they just loved each other, and they they fought and they did it, but they like one of the players said, you know, we were a really tight team, you know, you, <laughs> you could sit in the shitter <laughs> and look at the feet, to all and know exactly who it was. You just, knew, you know, you knew everything about each other. So now, you know, 20 years later, I'm walking around the tent, you know, the party tent where all these guys, you know, little pop bellies and the rest of it. And they came in from all over the country. And as I walked, you know, and you could see it in their eyes and hear it in their voices, they still loved each other. They just came alive with each other. And this was a few years after Moneyball came out. And I was a big fan of Moneyball, um, you know, to a, a great extent. And so I'm driving home from that party, that reunion party, and just thinking, you know, I get the analytics. I understand the analytics, but man, there was something very tangible in that tent. Something be among those guys that lifted their performance. And I really started thinking, I said, you know, I've never really thought about what team, you know, I always accepted team chemistry as a real thing, but I never thought about, well, what is it? So I sort of set out, you know, I was writing another book at the time, but this just, this really grabbed me. And so I, you know, every, you know, as you know, you know, you, you've written a lot and written um, books and, Um, you know, any really great story starts with a question. You know, you, you set yourself out on a journey. And my questions about this was, does team chemistry exist? And people like Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, will say, no, absolutely, it doesn't exist. You know, it's all about analytics and that's just a myth and, you know, magical thinking. So does it exist? If it exists, what is it? I mean, really like just what is it, teen chemistry? And then how does it affect performance? Because if it doesn't affect performance, why are we even talking about it? So that was in my head for the next 10 years. I finished the book I was working on, then went into this one. And I mean, I interviewed, you know, like 150 people, you know, at the end of the day and read about 30 books and totally, as as, as you are with this topic, um, totally obsessed. And so that's what, you know, very long answer to a short question. That's what got me on this path.
0: Did you explore through that process over those 10 years Environments outside of baseball. Like, did you go and look at kind of what team chemistry was elsewhere, and whether it was potentially different? Because again, the, the the easy way of looking at so Moneyball is the perfect sport and the perfect example for what it is, in that it is so linear. Whereas when when you come and look at my sport, for instance, so Australian football, eighteen players on the field on both teams, so thirty six players out on the field together, 18 on both sides, and it's a cricket-sized field, the amount of um, non-linear things that happen (laughs) drive you closer to the, of course, team chemistry and culture is real because it is so non-linear. So, yeah, what other sports did you explore to try to validate or non-validate your question?
1: Well, a couple of things. One is um, I... I did do um, basketball. So the Golden State Warriors, you know, were were in the midst of, you know, being one of the greatest teams in NBA history. And they're right in my backyard. And talking to Steve Kerr, they're amazingly um, smart, wise coach. And then also I had written a book about the 1996 Uh, women's Olympic team, the U.S. women's Olympic team that spent an entire year together preparing for that 96 Olympics. And so that was a case study in team chemistry for a lot of different reasons. And as you say, you know, baseball is not a sport like any other, because you're not really interacting as as your Australian rules football is, or a soccer team is, or a basketball team. It is just this constant um, give and take, give and take, give and take. And and you totally are relying on everybody else on, on the court, on the field with you. Baseball's not like that. You know, other than the pitcher and catcher, you know, you're not really very connected to anyone else on the field while you're there. So why would team chemistry really matter that much? So one of the reasons I really focused on baseball, and the book is probably 80% baseball, two reasons. One, that's the sport I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I basically, you know, was living in that clubhouse. And the Giants went on to win three World Series teams with... With teams that nobody picked to win, so I had kind of a front row seat on that. And I also thought, and this was, you know, more of a um, a strategic, monetary thing, financial thing. That, you know, who who buys these baseball books? And it's a lot of business people because there is no greater analogy for business than sports. Constantly, I mean, uh, and you know this, I mean, all the lessons you learn in sports you apply directly to business because it's all about high performance. So I thought, well, business baseball, the way it's set up, is more like an office workplace than any other sport because you look at a workplace, everybody, you have the shared purpose, you know what your goal is for whatever product you're producing or whatever it is, but you all have your own job that contributes to that purpose and you may be sitting in cubicles or you may be and so you know the guy in left field is not even close enough to talk to the guy in center field you know kind of yet they have to have a certain amount of um I mean not a certain amount a huge amount of connection and they have to have trust they have to trust each other in order to perform their jobs well and like in the workplace, like, well, why do they need trust? Well, because if you don't trust your coworker who's doing their job, that definitely has an impact on your job or an impact on you know the the ultimate goal of the work you're doing. If you don't, tr- you're complaining about that person. You're saying, "Oh God, they're not doing their job, and they're trying to undermine me because they think they're going to get the promotion, and I want the promotion." You know, that doesn't work toward high performance. <laughs> so a culture, it has to be a trusting culture in any group with a shared goal.
0: You know, I've never thought about it like that. For all of the things that I've done, you, you're exactly right, In you know, that baseball is that almost perfect picture for the business landscape. You know, I mean, it strikes me I've been asked to, lucky enough to, you know, speak at business conferences and technology conferences, and I'm often asked Why should we listen to examples about sport? And I've always kind of directed it in the direction of we usually think about it from a motivation perspective. We bring the San Francisco Giants center fielder in, we bring the quarterback in and we say motivate our staff and there's this five-minute sliver that you get of extra motivation and then they forget (laughs) that they even came in. And so that's clearly the wrong approach in terms of business looking at sport. But you're exactly right in that, uh, that shared purpose, but very, very distinct individual performance within that team environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there is. And, and when you think about it, whether it's business or sport, and sport, we get to witness it firsthand. You know, we're not going into a corporation and saying, oh, okay, how is that all working? But we get to watch it yeah. in sport. So that's why it is so has such an impact on, um, on business and, and on all of us, like we can, we can see it. And that's why, you know, the book is almost ironically called intangibles because it really is very, very tangible. But, you know, what I came to the conclusion, just to sort of jump there to kind of give a framework to this is that there are, there is a, um, a you know a develop a developmental progression to a culture that will ultimately have great chemistry. And it starts with trust, as we talked about, because you have to have trust in order to bond. There's no bonding with another human being. You never bond with another human being that you don't trust. So you create this this culture of trust and different ways to do that so that you can bond. And bonding is crucial because only with bonding can you truly commit. And you're not committing to the goal. You're not saying, okay, we're gonna win the World Series. No, you're committing to each other. Mm -hmm. And unless you start with trust so that you can bond, and once you have bonding, only then can you commit to one another because you have this connection that goes beyond just we wear the same uniform. And then once you have commitment, then you you will do whatever it takes to lift your teammates up, who are lifting you up and you're, you're pulling their very best performance out of each other. So it's not just you and your numbers anymore because you are committed as a whole. And you know, from all your experience in sports and I know even just from playing softball and you know through my whole life, that it is a uniquely pleasurable experience to triumph as a team and as a group because number 1 you know you've multiplied the joy of that accomplishment with all of you and those re- relationships last a lifetime and as i saw in that that party tent for the reunion of that 1989 giants and you that's how you overachieve and you know just to make a, a point to people listening to this Team chemistry cannot manufacture talent. And if you have really untalented players, you know, you're not going to win, you're not going to win the world series. You're not going to win anything, but with team chemistry, with that untalented team, you're going to get the very best out of the talent they have. So you are going to perform higher than you would otherwise but you're certainly not going to win if you know you're the you know whoever the nationals now playing the dodgers you know or playing my giants um you, so team chemistry doesn't guarantee a win it just guarantees higher performance among the players you have
0: you're so right on the bonding piece and something that i try to weave into almost everything that I write and <laughs> it, I, I maybe overdo this talking of your backyard is I'm a Bill Walsh fanatic. Okay. And, and so <laughs> if you follow any of my work, you will see his name come up a lot. And one of the most profound things that I've ever read came from him talking about, uh, I think he specifically says when soldiers come home from war and you ask them what it was that got them home. It wasn't freedom and it wasn't the flag and it wasn't the general in the Pentagon. It was the person to left them and the person to the right of them. And they would live and die by just that bond that you're talking about. And again, I, I think it's, it's so simple to, Throw up the picture of the World Series trophy, the Stanley Cup, you know, on the locker room door, and say that's where we're headed, fellas. But without that connection, you're you're right. You're not going to get there. And and you can see where you're going, but you can't see the path. Whereas when you're with other people, you can see that path together. And you're right. It, it is so incredibly powerful when you have it.
1: It 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 is. And the, the goal of that, you know, trophy at the end is, is a mirage. You know, it, you can't, you're not thinking of a trophy every day. So in order to be motivated, inspired, committed, energetic, all of that, you need something much closer at hand, <laughs> which is your comrades. And, and Bill Walsh is exactly right. And, and you know, I interviewed General Stanley McChrystal for this book and, and you know, because he's running his own business now. And so I and he wrote, I don't know if you read Team of Teams, but it is an extraordinary book that he wrote about his time in the military and then applying it to business uh, within the book. And it is that day to day to day, very ordinary interactions that build trust And he also, uh, and this is a a big part of one chapter in the book um, where I talked to Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent, who were, you know, two of, I think it was Bleacher Report's, you know, top 10 worst teammates of all time. And then the Giants ended up with both of them on one team. And you think, oh, God, this is going to be a bloodbath. And, um, And it wasn't because... And, and they couldn't stand each other. They're in the clubhouse. One's on one side, one's on the other with their backs to each other. They just could really couldn't stand each other. But what I discovered in talking to both of them at length is that they had great chemistry on the field. None off the field didn't speak to each other off the field, couldn't stand. On the field each one said there's no one i'd rather have on the field with me than that guy because they trusted each other they totally trusted each other to give to give everything they had out on the field and they would sacrifice themselves to win because they both wanted to win so i thought wow you know i think of team chemistry as this one thing but there are at least two types of team chemistry that on-field team chemistry, and then the clubhouse chemistry. And most human beings, as you know, because you do write about the emotional side of sports, that 99% of us need that emotional connection with people in order to bond and commit. But there are people who don't need that, that it is just all about the work. And it's like, great, because they are performing at a high level And inside the clubhouse, those two guys were so different from everybody else and crotchety. And and so they were on their own little island of misfit toys. And the whole rest of the team had that chemistry. And, you know, as I referenced earlier, it builds just in very ordinary interactions day to day to day. There's no big, you know, yeah, the manager can give a speech before a particular game and get everybody riled up. But that's not what creates the team chemistry. Even going out to dinner doesn't create the team chemistry. That's the evidence that they have team chemistry that was built in the clubhouse and the locker room.
0: Yeah, when you speak to people who have experienced an elite team that is cohesive in whatever sport, they describe this almost mindlessness of playing together in that they're there is so much reliability that they already know what the other person is going to do before they've even done it. And so they, you know, in soccer, they run to the position that they absolutely know that person in that instance is going to pass the ball there. Right. And only people that have experienced that can really describe it, Yeah. but it just breeds this sense of confidence in each other that you're right. It it almost takes away the element of needing to like each other. If you just put the ball there, I'll finish and we'll have respect for each other. Yeah. And then you can drag along everyone else on the team who like each other as well. And so right. it's this, yeah, this really bizarre kind of combination. You describe them as misfits. That's almost the ideal group though, because they they do to use a Steve Jobs ism, like the the rocks, you know, they they kind of hit hit against each other and form smooth rocks.
1: It's absolutely true. And there have to be those people on that tribe, on that team, that sort of, you know, needle the others. And that's, I call that um, person in my seven archetypes, um, the enforcer. Mm. And the enforcer is that person. And I say guys and anybody listening to this, I, I mean, men and women, I just use guys cause it's just easier to say. Um, so that guy, that enforcer is the guy that's kind of annoying, you know, a bit of an ass, you know, but he's the one. And, and you mentioned, you use the word cohesion and it is true. We need, co- 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 you definitely need cohesion. Too much cohesion is the worst thing you can do for a team. too much cohesion because everybody's kind of walking on eggshells. Nobody wants to rock the boat or criticize another teammate. You know, we all are just like, you don't want that at all. That's just dooming that team. You need the player or two or three that are saying, you know, yeah, you guys are all happy, you know, but you're playing like shit. And we need to, you know, we need to up our game here. You know, this is not, not okay, not tolerable. And we'll just call people out. And the rest of the team can be sitting there just saying, God, that guy's annoying. I can't, uh, you know, who is, who does he think he is? And it's like, yeah, but he's right. He's right. We got to do it. And if you don't have those people that call you out and make things a little uncomfortable, and we know this from, you know, whatever business you're in, you know, if you're really comfortable, you're not growing, right? You always have to be a little uncomfortable. You have to have a little bit of a stretch, to say, Oh, I don't know, maybe I'm a little over my skis here. But if you're, if you're really too comfortable, forget it, you're you're not going anywhere. And so that's, you know, sort of what you're, you're talking about um, with cohesion, and with these guys connecting on the field in a way that they don't connect in the clubhouse. And it's such a good lesson for workplaces. You're not going to like everybody in your workplace, you know, and you may never want to go out to lunch with that person, but you're like, man, I'm glad he's on my team. You know, he delivers when he needs to deliver and we are way better for having him with us.
0: Talking of the team picking you, can you tell us the Johnny Gomes story?
1: Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, So Johnny Gomes is, was, he's, he's retired now. So he was the ultimate journeyman player. You know, he was good enough to get on a team, but not good enough to stay with a team. So he would go from team to team to team. And this pattern emerged with Johnny Gomes that his teams won, you know, and it became like wait a minute, something's going on here with Johnny Gomes, even though, you know, he's batting 245, you know, he's, he plays a a, a decent left field, uh, but his teams won. And he was what I called, ended up calling, I did a whole chapter on him just to find, you know, this curious case of Johnny Gomes, when he goes into a team, they all seem to play better. And, um, and so he had this, way about him that he was so committed to his teams. He would, he was so selfless on his teams that, you know, guys rallied around him and I ended up calling him, you know, a super carrier. And so the best example of his impact on a team. So he goes, he gets traded again, goes to the Red Sox, Boston Red Sox. And the Red Sox, I think, were last in their division the year earlier. This was 2013. He goes to the Red Sox. In 2012, they were, like, last place. And, you know, just to be fair, they brought in a lot of different players that year. It wasn't just Johnny Gomes going in there. So, you know, they nobody thinks they're going to win, blah, blah, blah. They get to, but they get to the playoffs. They get to the World Series. And now they're down two games to one to the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, you know, it's a best of seven. So if they lose the next game, they're down three games to one, they've got a really steep climb to win that World Series. So the lineup goes up for that game four and Johnny Gomes isn't in the lineup, which made perfect sense because, you know, he's a right-handed batter and they had a um, a right-handed pitcher, you know, which is not a advantageous um, matchup for a a batter. So he's platooned in left field. He's, He's not in the lineup. And he had yet to get a hit in the World Series. And he was batting like, you know, 110 for the postseason. So, but the leadership in the Boston Red Sox clubhouse, they get together and they say, you know, okay, this is not okay. They march into the manager's office and they say, you got to put Johnny Gomes in the lineup. You know, and of course the manager <laughs> is like, number one, I'm the manager. I get to, you know, make my own lineup. And number two, are you out of your mind? You know, he's done nothing this entire playoffs and the matchup is bad. Everything is bad. <laughs> and they would not leave. And this is big poppy and Dustin Petroya and John Lester. I mean, all these guys like, no, it was an insurrection that nobody ever knew about. And the manager had no choice. He, all of a sudden, one of the other outfielders had lower back pain. Oh, he can't play today. We're making a last minute change in the, in the lineup. And Johnny Gomes is in left field. Now, by coincidence, he hits a two run homer that puts them ahead and they win the game. But those guys, this was such a revelation to me. And it and it took me down this other uh, a vein of how much actual belief changes your physiology. Those guys on that team truly believed that Johnny Gomes made a difference. Just his presence on the field made them all play better. And therefore they did. They played better and they went on to win the world series, you know? And, and so you just say, okay, okay. And then you could see all these other examples and there's so much research, you know, Johnny Gomes was the walking placebo, you know, Mm -hmm. in medicine, if you believe this pill is going to get rid of your headache, really believe it. And the, and the doctor is like, you know, this is what you need. Your brain then activates that part of your brain that, that, um, lessens pain because you believe it. I mean, that's how powerful our brains are. And so it works on so many levels and so many ways in our own lives. And so that to me was like one of the greatest stories about team chemistry I've ever heard.
0: It's funny, isn't it? You know, I'm sitting here with my coach hat on thinking how few times we even ask who the Johnny Gomes is. It's it's kind of this this idea that, you know, the people in the coaches' room understand the dynamic of the team and we don't even bother to ask. We look at the numbers or we observe at training or we observe in the locker room and we try to piece it all together. And so rarely actually go and find out who is that rock, that, that placebo, right. That and makes everyone elevated.
1: And a lot of teams don't have one. I mean, a lot, John of, teams don't don't, a lot of teams don't have one, but you know, I have these seven archetype characters, you know, that what I observed and then ran this by, you know, a gazillion players, coaches, you know, general managers, these players, I don't know if team chemistry creates these players, but these players seem to always appear on a really great team chemistry team. And and you know, I can go through them if i <laughs> if I can remember them. Um, but I, the reason I bring it up is that for a manager, you know, a coach, a um a supervisor in a workplace, there are so many ways players contribute to the high performance as a team. So many ways they do that. And so if you as a coach, or as a supervisor in a business don't recognize the intangible ways these people who you supervise or manage if you only look at their numbers oh how many sales did he have you know how many RBIs does he have you know how many goals does he you know if you only look at that you're totally missing the contributions your players are actually making to that win so you're recognizing the Johnny Gums, you're recognizing what I call, you know, the jester, the guy who just has that great humorous touch that can break the tension at a at any time when the pressure is starting to mount. And he can just puncture that and okay, you know, everybody can kind of relax. The jester also, what the jester can do that a manager, if they're not paying attention and not looking for it, would never see this. The jester can give the most brutal criticism and feedback to a teammate, but wrapped in humor, it lands much more softly. And that person you're telling it to can actually hear the message because you're delivering it in a way that doesn't put their defenses up. And it's like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, you know, are, are you, you don't like me anymore? Or what, you know, all of those things. And a good jester to me, you know, other than if you have a super carrier like Johnny Gomes, is the most valuable archetype you can have on a team chemistry team because they can do so much and keep everybody together through humor. Um, you know, and then there's the other archetype characters. And so it's very, it's crucial that we recognize all the ways somebody is contributing to winning. And as with Johnny Gomes during that World Series, it certainly wasn't his numbers that helped them win. It was it was the impact he had on his teammates. And and that manager didn't recognize that through the whole season that 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 these hit Johnny Gomes's teammates just so believed in him. He's like the talisman. He's the you know, the rabbit's foot, the what, you know, whatever we hold on to that make us feel bigger than we are, better than we are. Okay, I'm ready to go. And of course, it's human nature. You know, it's all hardwired in our brains from, you know, millions of years ago.
0: Hmm. We can't talk about the Red Sox too much because I'm sitting in Toronto and people <laughs> will start to get upset. Um, but I, I will use a hockey example here because it, this world becomes really fascinating when you look at the NHL because of the expansion, the recent expansion. So you've got Vegas come in. So you've got an expansion draft. They essentially draft third, fourth liners or AHL minor league players, put them together in the desert in Nevada and go on in their first year a Stanley cup run, which I could make the argument that it's the hardest to get into of all of the the major sports to get to the Stanley cup playoffs. That to me says they either have such advanced analytics that (laughs) aliens, aliens have come down and given (laughs) them the secret formula to (laughs) figuring out ice hockey, right. Or, potentially they got so many Johnny Gomes and put them together that they <laughs> elevated themselves because this is the experts tipped them to come 31st um, Wow because they would just they had no top end talent and we're, we're about to see this happen again with Seattle come into the league and so yeah I, I this is why I'm kind of fascinated to see what happens is because, as you're assembling from scratch these archetypes do you go you know all the same kind of archetype who becomes the jester is there a jester maybe that you don't see that doesn't show that until they get into this particular environment with this particular group of of young men and do they take on another role within that group
1: yeah you nailed it that is you can't this is the downside and I'm saying all of this as if I know everything and I don't. But oh, just so I, my, so. just, yeah, <laughs> just from my research, it's that you can't hire for an archetype. Like you can't draft an archetype because as you, you know um, alluded to, the group creates the archetype. The group, you know, intuitively choose like somebody emerges as that. So you could be the jester on one team and the enforcer on a different team, because that's what that team needs. It's like the team manifests what it needs and and they just emerge. So obviously there was amazing leadership on that Vegas team, like really smart managers, coaches, really smart and incredible locker room leaders because they're the day to day to day to day to day people. The other thing that strikes me about that story and what you know the the 100% analytics people totally miss and totally forget is that yes, the analytics I'm a huge fan of analytics. I mean, who wouldn't be? You know, they tell you they they tell you what's actually happening on the field that you can only see by lots of data. Right. We don't know that this one guy is hitting, you know, I didn't notice that one guy is hitting to left field every single time, you know, there's a a left-handed pitch, whatever it is. Um, What the analytics people miss is that you can come up with the most brilliant strategy. Like you can have the aliens, as you say, come down, who know what they've got, the formula. And guess what? Humans still have to carry it out. Right the strategy doesn't play the game. Actual human beings play the game. So how are you going to get those human beings to make the best possible use of your brilliant strategy? They have to be motivated. They have to be committed. They have to believe in each other, right? All of those things have to be true. And the analytics don't implant any of that those are your people who carry it out. And so when, when people say, well, I don't believe in team chemistry, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> it's just basic human nature science that says human beings, if you're in a bad mood or something happened or you feel like, oh my God, I'm going to get traded tomorrow or my manager doesn't like me and he's never going to play me again. You think you can give 100% on the field on that, uh, you know, or, or on the court. Of course you can't because we're not robots. So, you know, all of that, and that's so much what you look at, you know, what is the, you know, emotional human side of all of this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, as a head coach, my mind also goes to, to your point, I actually don't care whether this has worked 999 times out of a thousand, because I need it to work once and it plays out to your point in real time. Like you mentioned earlier, it plays out. Human beings have to actually carry it out. And so at a certain point, the previous 50, 100, 150 years of the sport don't matter. This person, Marshawn Lynch needs to either run the ball across the goal line or Russell Wilson needs to throw the ball to, to our receiver, right? Like, and so, yeah, the, where the real strength is, is the meshing between all of those things. And it, it seems like baseball has kind of moved that way off the back of Moneyball, where the inefficiencies that it pointed out have kind of been equalized to the point where we're in this post Moneyball era where it's like, okay, but what else is there?
1: Right, right. Everybody has- Which is ironic. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, everybody has those Ivy League guys, you know, in every cubicle in their front offices, you know, churning out these, you know, proprietary algorithms on, you know, how we can do all of this best, which is, which is fascinating and interesting, and it's only part of the equation of fielding the best possible team you have, and, um, and, and so I'm, I'm glad the pendulum does seem to be swinging back somewhat. To like, oh yeah, there's people out there. It's not all about you know the brilliance of the Ivy Leaguers, you know, and they get caught up in their own brilliance. And we see it, you know, on on every team. It's like, oh, it's all about you know me, you know, moving the chess pieces. And you're like, yeah, it, it that's a big part of it, and choosing the right players from the analytics you know, uncovering as Michael, you know, as, as the Oakland A's did in Michael Lewis's book uncovering, you know, these little treasures that other people didn't recognize because we want on base percentage, you know, all of, all of those things. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it is so complex, isn't it? You know, there is no formula. I mean, I wish I could have written a book because I would have sold a lot better, You you know, the seven steps to the perfect team chemistry team, you know, But you know, as you said, you know, there are no seven steps that apply to every team.
0: I wish I hadn't written that book too.
1: Yeah, I know. That'd
0: that'd be a great one.
1: (laughs) I know. Well, why don't we together and we can just do it and people will believe that we have those seven steps and we'll just buy the (laughs) book and we'll know. It's like, no, that's garbage because it doesn't exist. And it's like it's truly like any book that says there's seven steps to solving any complex problem, I'm like, yeah, move on, you know, in the bookshelf to the next one that says, you know, here are my thoughts. (laughs) After doing a lot of research, it seems like this is what it might be.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm curious, and I ask this of most people who've written books, your perception of what was going to stand out in the book when you launched it, versus maybe something that people took to that you didn't necessarily expect. So the example that I usually use is I wonder whether Malcolm Gladwell thought the 10,000 hours thing yeah. was going to be the one. I'm sh- he was probably in love with a different chapter personally <laughs> in outliers. And and that was maybe a bit of a throwaway chapter and he's like no 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 the, the people are going to resonate with this one but then when you give it right. to the audience as you know better than most when you give it to the audience it becomes theirs and no longer yours
1: right right that was is was there tr- something
0: that that people took from your book that either maybe wasn't a favorite or you didn't necessarily think was going to be a standout
1: well that didn't really, oh, well, a lot of people, I was surprised, like really, really loved the chapter on the 1996 women's Olympic team. Um, they loved the story of that team and spending a year together and how much they changed and what changed about them. And also really looking at um, the female experience in a certain way. And but, but when you ask that question, I think of how much I was surprised by some of the things I found, and it became a slightly different book than what I expected. And and one of the ones was you know, I knew I was going to write about Johnny Gomes and, you know, my super carrier. So clearly, there are super disruptors if there are super carriers, right? And I knew right away who my super disruptor was, and it was Barry Bonds. You know, I had covered Barry Bonds when I was a sports columnist um, for the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, and he was as bad as everybody said he was. He was awful, awful to the press and to to everybody. You know, you're just like, God, you know, and his, his teammates didn't even like him. So, I mean, he was my super disruptor. And for all how great he was and for all the years he spent with them, they never won a World Series. So in my mind, it's like, you know they should have won. They probably didn't win. You know because of him. He's so selfish. Blah blah blah. blah. Only to discover I was totally wrong on that. Because when I look at how many games they won, you know, because then I actually looked at the facts of you know the performance of those teams that he was on. There were no wild cards back then. So they won like 103 games one season and didn't win their division. You know, because they were in a really tough division, so they won tons and tons and tons of games. So there, there was that. And then going back to you know part of our discussion earlier, to find out that Bonds wasn't a disruptor in the clubhouse because he was off on his own, um, and that he had that very different kind of chemistry out on the field. And what in that chapter became all very popular and I, I knew it would because it was a very different framing of who Barry Bonds actually is. And it took me a year of interacting with him because he would be out at the ballpark. When I was out at the ballpark working with the players and then he would sometimes be in the clubhouse because you know he was a kind of a consultant and and we'd find ourselves You know, I would just talk to him, no notebook, no tape recorder or anything, just talking to him. And we finally bonded, you know, months into this over my son, my my only child who had, you know, adopted significant learning disabilities. And then he had a traumatic brain injury when he was 16, like a really bad brain injury. So, you know, he had disabilities, disabilities, disabilities. So, um, and learning disabilities. And Barry Bonds said to me, like, well, you know, I can't read. I said, what? You can't read? And he said, no, he said, I can read, but like, I can, you know, I've never read a book. I can't, you know, really write very well, you know, sentences, he said, and my daughter, has his daughter he's talking his daughter had also had learning disabilities and he got her a tutor he said but i never got that Mm -hmm. and it was always under the radar never talked about it um, whatever so and he said i bet if i met your son you know i would understand everything he's going through and all of that and you know and so we would talk about that and at one time you know i actually." you know, was thinking about my son and he was going through something. And I started, I, I started crying, talking to Barry Bonds and he puts his arm around me. He says, you know, it's going to be okay, you know. And so he just became this guy named Barry and he's a right. totally different guy. yeah, Totally different guy, but he'd go back and forth, you know, of being you know, like idiot, jerky Barry Bonds. You know, like the first thing he asked me, I said, you know, I'd love to interview you for my book, interview you for my book. You know, what's your book about team chemistry? doesn't exist, blah, blah, blah. Um, And he says, how much are you going to pay me? (laughs) And I said, well, I'll pay you the same thing I paid everybody else, which is nothing. So, So, and then he got over that and then we ended up sitting and talking for three hours and just going through so much. And I was riveted. I mean, he really is like one of these genius guys in his little world of baseball. He's just a genius. And then I said to him, to build this trust. I mean, talk about somebody who doesn't trust anybody. I said, um, so I am going to let you read this. I will read it to you when I finish writing this chapter. So you are not blindsided. You will know exactly is in there because I do address the steroids. I address his behavior, all of those things, and you know, what we then, you know, ultimately talked about. So I went over to his house, you know, because he originally said, "Oh, nobody comes to my house. Nobody, well, then he invited me over to his house." And we sat at his dining room table, and I read the whole chapter to him. And he he said, you know, there were a couple of things he said well, that never happened. I said, "Okay, it's out. It was just like a little anecdote. I didn't really need anyway." And so, um, you know, it 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 turned out to be this really solid, authentic experience, and that is so far from what I expected I would write about in that chapter. It was really satisfying.
0: I bet. Yeah. It's funny how consistently you hear that about the hyper-talented where as you were talking there, I was thinking about the Diego Maradona documentary documentary. And they actually describe it in there. Multiple people kind of describe it the same way. And they say, there was Diego mm-hmm. and there was Maradona. Yes. And exactly. I knew and I knew Diego. So I would look at Maradona and say, Who the hell is that guy? Because that is not the person that that I know. But there's this switch around performance in particular. That's these people can obviously switch between sometimes get stuck in one and not in the other. And, and uh, I'm imagining there's all sorts of difficulties with that, but it's, it's remarkable how often you hear that similar.
1: Right. Because they are geniuses. And I, and I kind of compared yeah. him to Steve jobs. I mean, Steve jobs was a horrible, horrible person in so many ways. I mean, he just, and you could tell like they're, you know, of course, of course, I think everybody's on the autism spectrum on, on some ways. And like, I think some of those guys are, are a little bit like that in that they're hyper-focused, hyper-obsessed, you know, with their incredible genius in, you know, some sliver of, of the world, right? And so for Bonds, it it was that hitting and for Maradona and, and, you know, musicians and writer, you know, they're they're odd people. If if you are a genius in that thing, one of the reasons in this I I do write in the book, and I don't think I well, did I write it in the book? That when you think about Barry Bonds and how he distanced himself from the media and was horrible with the media, now. If you have a learning disability and you literally can't read, you know, you're functionally illiterate. And every single day, several times a day during the baseball season, mostly white, college educated reporters are coming at you. They don't like you. You don't like them. And he he in his mind says, they're just trying to catch me. They're just trying to write something. Well. He's trying to protect, he doesn't want anybody to know he's illiterate, right? And so what do you do? You put up this wall as thick as you can put it up so you're not vulnerable to their making fun of you, them exploiting all of those things. And so, you know, the more I sort of pulled back some of those layers, it's like, okay, I I can see this. I can see that happening
0: absolutely so where does your mind go now after all of your your research and you know uh, 10 years of of writing this book around around chemistry if you could give a piece of advice to a lot of coaches who listen to this in all sorts of sports all over the world including a lot of baseball coaches if you could right. point to one or two things from your learnings what would they be
1: Number one, it would be to keep analytics in perspective, that it is a tool like everything. It is a tool. Somebody needs to wield that tool, right? You know, it's all how the tool is used. So keep that in perspective. You know, don't back off of the analytics, but understand that's part of an equation. And so, you know, it used to be that everybody thought they were so cutting edge, it was all analytics. The real cutting edge coaches are the ones that totally embrace analytics and understand human nature. Because the way to manage a group of humans is to understand how humans operate, (laughs) right? And understand something about the brain that we are wired for connection. We're always looking for connection. So it doesn't take huge effort to pull people together because they're looking for that. Anyway, we are wired to want to be trusting. And when you are trusted, right? If you show trust to someone, guess what happens? They feel trustworthy, right? And if you feel trustworthy, you know you're carrying something that that's the expectation that you are trustworthy because I've already shown that I trust you, right? So so take that tact, look for, and also this is huge, huge, huge for every coach is to accept the players you have in all of their flaws and all of their quirks because they are not going to change. So accept who they are, wholly who they are, and not be like, God, well, I wish we had this. You don't have that. You have this group of guys. And guess what? They're there for a reason. They ended up at this elite level for a reason. So accept who they are. And And you're not just accepting who they are. You're accepting who they are to your team. What is the role they play on your, you may hate who they are in social media and all that, but accept them for who they are to your team. And, you know, guess what? And I learned this with my son. I was always trying to fix him, fix him, fix him, fix him, you know? And I wrote a book after his uh, brain injury and how I got a second chance at being his mother because, you know, he couldn't swallow, he couldn't speak, couldn't do anything. I got to raise him all over again and I did it very differently. I I celebrated everything he was and not try to fix everything he wasn't. And oh, what a relief to me and what a gift to my son. I love you for who you are. And I'm telling you, that works in all our relationships and teams are just a, you know, multiple relationships, but ultimately it's my relationship with the person next to me and that person across the clubhouse. And that, you know, they are individual relationships that then just, you know, we thread, we have this thread through all of us, but every thread connects to, and some of the threads are stronger than others, but the thread is there. And it's so much about trust and acceptance, which leads to the bonding, which leads to that Fabulous sense of commitment that when you have that commitment to each other, you're golden. You then you've really got something. And you, at that point, you assume good intention. So somebody may do something stupid or say something, you know, off, you know, inappropriate, but you know their intention was good because you know them. They've proven that to you. So that's a lot of different things. There's like not one, there's not one thing, but I think the trust and acceptance are enormous.
0: Perfect. And I couldn't agree more. So many teams that I see are an errant pass away from collapsing their their belonging. And I'll tell you what happens when you, when an errant pass happens as a player, your head rattles and your chest tightens and you feel threatened that you don't belong in that group anymore because you've made an error. It's a non-critical error. And if you're that close to everything collapsing, that a non-critical error is going to essentially shut off your talent as a player. You're, you're not even close to having a sense of belonging in that team um, that's going to get you high performance. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to, hack biology but you you can't hack this deep deep stuff it it's either there or it's not and to your point it'll never show up in the numbers but it is absolutely there
1: it is it is no you're absolutely right and it you know called the book intangibles and it and it's all about those intangibles right
0: where can people find the book and find you and all your other work uh, and everything that you've got going on
1: well, you can find the book anywhere books are sold, maybe not in actual bookstores at this point, cause the book has uh, been out a year. And so then they're sort of, but you can get it, you know, anywhere online that they sell books, you know, Amazon or, or um, you know, I always encourage ordering it from your local bookstore to, to support our local bookstores our independent bookstores. Um, but Amazon certainly an easy way to do that. Um, my website is uh, com. It's not the greatest website in the world, and that's something I am going to work on. So don't judge it too harshly. Uh, but you can find my other books there as well.
0: And social media.
1: Social media. Um, I think I'm just at Joan Ryan maybe John Ryan won. I don't know, but you can, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and on, on Instagram, although I don't post on Instagram. Um, and there was one other thing I was going to tell you. Oh, so, so my big takeaway, the other big takeaway from this book is that I am never writing another book.
0: <laughs> that, is, <laughs>
1: that is it. I've written five and each one gets more difficult because now you you keep raising the bar for yourself and is the most frustrating thing in the world. And so that's why it took me 10 years and I was miserable almost every day of it. I love the research. If I could just research research and then hand it off for somebody else to actually write the book, boy, I'd love that. But it's the writing that is so hard and there's just so much failure in writing and there's no failure in research because every time you do some research, oh, I've got more, oh, I've got more, this is great. And in uh, writing, you know, if you're like me, you just feel like you just die a little bit (laughs) every day. (laughs) So it's like, why would I put myself through that ever again? So I'm not doing that. I'm doing more speaking, doing a lot more speaking engagements, which is a lot more fun.
0: It feels like an affront anytime anyone mentions anything about maybe removing one word or adding a word are you like what are you talking about that's, that's not, <laughs> it is a such a difficult process I agree with oh, you
1: it's awful it is awful oh, but a lot of people enjoy it obviously you know I'm I've just become not one of them
0: <laughs> Joe, I'm um, thrilled that we can make this happen. Thank you for passing on your knowledge and for writing the book. Uh, You didn't have to. I know it was a a bit of a labor, but um, it's such a valuable message and hopefully it's it's meaningful to you as well because it will be to a lot of other people.
1: It is. I'm glad I wrote it. I'm glad I wrote it Um, and I'm glad that people are finding it useful. That's very, very satisfying.
0: Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Joan.
1: Thanks, Cody. This was really fun. I I so appreciate it.